0: everybody underestimated how big the data was going to be. And now at this point, I think everybody underestimates how big a category data tools is going to be because the data currently is not usable. When you look at a lot of the products, teams built around Spark, built around Hadoop, you know, built around like a lot of these things, like each one is a point feature. And, and so I, I think we are looking at it and saying, first, there was a consolidation at the cloud layer. Everybody's gonna use one of the three clouds. On top of that, there's just two data platforms, right? Databricks and Snowflake that have become dominant. And then on top of that, in the tooling layer, one or two tools will become dominant. I'm Raj Baines I'm the founder CEO of Prophecy.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries, who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lappart. Today, how Raj Baines set out to create a low-code path so you can be productive in data engineering. All this and more on Code Story. Rosh Baines grew up in India, north of Delhi, and came from a family who, as he says, does whatever is best to do at the time. They moved around quite a bit when he was a kid, and his family dabbled in a number of different trades. After doing an internship in France and then completing his undergrad, he moved stateside and has called many different states his home. In those states, he got involved in outdoor activities like kayaking, mountain biking, and the like. In addition, he plays a lot of games, specifically on his phone, which makes his fingers hurt. Raj comes from a background of building powerful tools that also happen to be really complicated and hard to use, specifically around the data engineering space. To put it blunt, he felt that the tools were from the Stone Age. He knew that he could build something better. This is the creation story of Prophecy.
0: Prophecy is a low-code data engineering product. So first, let me just step back and say what the data engineering space is. You have all these operational systems, right, where you're booking tickets, you're doing credit card transactions, you are, you know, figuring out how your logistics are happening in an e-commerce company, and then you have your analytics systems. This is like, you know, the snowflakes, the, the data bricks, you know, your data warehouses. And basically, let's say I'm, I'm in a bank, and I'm a product manager, and I want to figure out which customers are most profitable for my credit card and try to get some more of those. So now I need data about my customers, I need their demographic data, about their transactions, about their rewards, and kind of do some analysis on that. And that analysis is very specific to my product. Now, as soon as I look over my shoulder in the bank, the next person is working on pages. That person has a completely different set of data to get together. So in a business, every single decision that needs to be made, requires different data. So you need all these data pipelines to get data in, clean data, put it in the right shape for doing all the machine learning and, you know, and analytics. And and what we provide is software that makes it super easy, right? It's visual drag and drop. You know, you don't need to be an expert in PySpark or Scala or even SQL, but, you know, you can visually build pipelines. And it, a lot of it is about saying, hey, the business people can build it, right? The person who knows about the credit card data they can do it, making the technology very accessible. I come from the world of compilers. So I worked in Microsoft, where we used to you know, compile Windows every day, right? It's like the Visual Studio compilers. And then I, I moved to NVIDIA, where I was in the early team that built CUDA. Now CUDA is what allows you to do non-graphic stuff on the GPU. So all of the deep learning that you see now, all of that happens on NVIDIA GPUs, all of that is using CUDA. So again, you know, kind of coming from building these powerful tools, right? They can be very complex pieces of software. And then I moved to the world of data. My last job was, I was at Hortonworks, which was selling this product called Hadoop. And I was the product manager for Apache Hive, which was, you know, quite a lot used for, again, building these data pipelines. And this stuff was so hard to use, right? And then I started working with the tooling vendors, being new to the data space. I'm like, these tools are written by simple application developers. It looks like we're still in the stone age. We can build something way better. So so with that, started the journey. You know, and then my customers were really suffering, right? They were like, this stuff is hard to use. So I'm like, we've been talking about this. Oh, data is the new oil for like a decade, right? It's like, all right. And now we're still talking about data as a new oil, and then nobody can get, you know, most companies struggle to get data into their analytics. So I am like, all right, let's go solve it once and for all. So, so that, that's what we're doing.
1: Okay, well, let's dive into the MVP then. So tell me about that first product you built. How long did it take to build, and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life?
0: It took forever, I I did not follow any advice. I've kind of learned by stumbling, stumbling and stumbling. You know, I was a C programmer, and, and then I moved into this new world of Hadoop and Big Data. And I was a product manager, so I had not been coding for a few days. And then I sat back and thought, what do I need? What should I build this system in? It was the early days of Kubernetes. I'm like, we're gonna have to build a service in the cloud. It's gonna have to scale. So it's going to be Kubernetes and it's going to be microservices. And you know, at that time managed Kubernetes was not even available. So now I'm saying 2015, I'm thinking about what to build. 2016, I think. So I I didn't know how to code those systems and and the cloud was new because I was building systems in C. So I quit my job. I actually was trying to find a place where I could live for cheap. So I just moved back to India to my parents' house. So I, I would get, you know, no rent and I get fed. For six, seven months, I just taught myself, you know, the cloud, the Kubernetes programming. I chose Scala as the language. Functional programming is the best there. So then I kind of, I I built a prototype, which I was still split between, should I build a machine learning studio with data prep or should I build just data engineering and leave the analytics out? So, So, you know, I built it with a couple of contract developers on the UI. I built the MVP and then I came back here to U.S., I raised some angel money, but then it was so expensive to hire developers. I went back for, for I mean, and I'm, I came to US in 2002, so I've never really worked in India. I, I went and built a prototype that was ready to be used, you know, and, and that was like Kubernetes, Scala microservices, and React from the get-go. And and then came back here and tried to find product market fit. And it, it, it just seemed like people couldn't use my machine learning product. It was too hard for analysts because I was targeting analysts. And then I pivoted to saying, no, we're going to do production data engineering because that part I really understand. And then it took a while, it took a while. 2019, we took the seed round, 2 million, then you know the investors put in another two, another two, and it took two years to land you know, the first set of two, three customers. But we went to the largest enterprises, kind of sat there and built the product, right?
1: Two, three of them. When you're building that MVP, and I, I hear how you went about it. And that's, those are, those are great stories. I, what I want to ask is tell me about some of the decisions and trade-offs you had to make when building that, right? Um, you're working through the MVP, your people, you know, weren't able to use it. You probably had to make other decisions. Tell me about those you had to make around, you know, feature cut or scope limitation or even technical debt and how you coped with those decisions. So one, I, I don't think I got it
0: right, uh, but some things that did help is I picked the right technologies in terms of being, you know, and Kubernetes microservices and this. My core thing was I the product might have to be adapted. So I just wanted to build small blocks that I could assemble and reassemble, right? And then if somebody, you know, even came in and wrote bad code in one piece of the product, you know, we could just fix that one up without, you know, by limiting the damage. So I think one of the things I did because we needed to be flexible was... Uh, To build the product as microservices and even within microservices as these small libraries, you know, that do one thing well, kind of composable Lego blocks and blocks. So so then even when after the first MVP and then the second thing was just making it good enough saying, hey, the, the boundaries are good. The code doesn't have to be the best. The code has to be okay because we're probably going to throw it because we're still finding product market fit i think that's the key thing you have to say i'm still finding product market fit till you actually see it happen but then yeah that's the thing it's like do i polish the product do i get feedback first right and and so there is that part of iteratively working with the customer
1: so how did you progress the product from there and mature it and I'm curious about, you know, how you built your roadmap and how you went about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with prophecy.
0: So we took a path that is not common. I So basically... I was like, I'm over 40 years old. I'm not going to take market risk because I was like, you know, I'm not going to build something like Airbnb where, you know, if the market turns out big, that's great. We become big. So I was like, I'm going to go after replacement. And we said, okay, replacement of this thing called ETL, which is our data engineering. People are moving to the cloud. They need replacement. Now I know for sure the market's there can I build the right product, right? It's the same that the Snowflake founders would have had, right? It's like very much saying, I do not want to take market risk. I will take technology and execution risk. And then what I thought is now I need to know, get into the guts of systems of a company that actually has this problem at scale. So what I said is like, hey, I will build this migration tool that will move you from your existing ETL product to Spark. And this automated translation thing and took a contract. Right. But that and, and this is one of the largest companies in the world, one of the most prominent brand names. And, and I just took that contract. Right. But what it gave me access to is all their data pipelines, all the complex, gnarly stuff. And I looked at it myself in detail and then had started having discussions with the team about what a new generation solution would look like, what their priorities were we asked them about like if they had to start using a product what would be the minimum they would need for a replacement product for from you know the old product that they were getting out of so it was very much about you know how do i make my first sale happen at that point you're desperate right you're you just you just want one customer to
1: convert Okay. So let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And, you know, I hear, you know, early days, some contractors, and then I'm sure you've progressed now and hiring full-time people. Tell me about that process and what you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you.
0: What happened is that after we built that that cross, uh, what I would call the cross compiler from the old ETL product to Spark, you know, I got a seed round. And then I had a couple of, you know, full time people back in India that I had hired since then. But that's that's all we had. It was like three people, four. Um, and then after the seed round is when we started looking for people. One of the first people I found is, you know, a, a co-founder of another company. So Berkeley Skydeck invested. And that's one of the benefits of going to a Berkeley Skydeck or a Y Combinator. Because you're meeting a lot of peers and those are good candidates. You know, even though I had done good work, I didn't have the credibility or or you might even call it charisma where you know some people are all going to just want to work with me and join. I didn't have the network in Bay Area where I could just go get, you know, five people, seven people together. Like that was not going to happen. And you know, it's great for the people who can do that. I just didn't have that. The salaries for them are very high. The entitlement is very high. So within engineering, I just said, I have to find a place in the market where I can be competitive, not just to be, you know hire five people, but to hire 50. I went and decided to again hire in India and grow the team. And there, a lot of it was early on finding people who were very sharp, willing to take a risk, kind of, you know, they always say, you know, if we want to find somebody who has a chip on the shoulder, this and that. But, you know, I just paid well and very, very basic. I said the work is interesting. You have e-commerce startups in India. They don't have the most interesting work till you hit scale. And then a lot of technology startups do their core work in Bay Area and secondary work goes to India. So I said, what, what if I say, hey, we are going to build a core tech company and going to build a core tech in India then I'll be able to attract the best engineers. And And I think that's what we did and, and finding that gap in the market where we said, hey, we could offer them something nobody else can is building initial core technology. I was able to find some very smart engineers. That said, uh, we just hired people who put their head down and produced a lot of work, right? I kind of know what the product is and I need execution is the way to go so you know that a lot of hiring a group of you know and people who have all strong opinions and so it look the the startup doesn't look like any of that and i've talked to a whole bunch of other startup founders and none of that looks like that right it's like you get 50 smart people in a room in bay area like I, i haven't seen that might have been you know that's 20 year old
1: story Let's flip to scalability then. Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction?
0: No, I, th- I think our scalability story is, uh, at least on the product side, uh, we, we built scalability from day one. It was not a wise decision. It made my journey much harder. The fact that the, how we built the product, I hired platform people early on who were at the Kubernetes layer. We wrote our product as an operator, as a fully hosted SaaS service. Now it's been five years. So it's so so we've made very heavy investment into making sure the software runs and scales and stuff. So even like raised series Ale, but six months back. And yeah, and, and our software is a single click deploy uh, into somebody's VPC from a cloud marketplace already so we've always put scalability in place and then the other thing is so so there's there's scalability in terms of the software architecture i think we've always had scalability we've had some pieces we'd have to rewrite but then that's one microservice and very limited the other part of it is can i scale hiring it's like yes you know we've 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 been able to scale hiring and building the team we've for every single piece we do we've hired some senior engineers are really capable and are very high throughput and then we pay them really well and the strategy is to just not lose them there is no redundancy built into the system the plan is to not lose any engineers basically
1: well as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built what are you most proud of I think I'm proud of how nice the product
0: is and how great the team behind it is. It's like we have built a superpower. We are very much headed to be the product and technology leader in the space. We are not the revenue leader yet, but I think we have great pride in the product, all the way from software architecture to the UX of the product to the visual design. It's just that craft that we've put, and now the the great team that's built, building it. You know, from from me writing code to my co-founder to me stopping my co-founder. Machek writing code to him stopping and now the engineering team building the product knowing the priorities like it's it's just that well-oiled engineering machine that can you know deliver a product where people are enthusiastic about it they get along you know they're all proud of what they've built so I think some of it is the culture some of it is the great group of individuals and, and then what we're able to produce and now I think we're just starting to do the same on the go-to-market side but it's just beautiful it's like I you know some days I can just go back Home and sleep, and I and and you know, the world keeps running. There is that great sense of ownership in the team, it's their product, it's their company, you know. So, I think that that's what I'm most proud of. If I if I did if I go away for vacation for a month, like a lot of the things will just keep running.
1: Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So, tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I think one big mistake was going for a machine learning studio
0: product. I was taking market risk. The product didn't work. And then I was like, you know, too much money of the investors, of angels, of even my family into the startup for me to take that kind of risk. So I I think that that was a clarifying moment. I think that was a big mistake we made. I wonder if we've made many other mistakes. I think getting early customers was very, very hard. I think there were some bad hires. I have listened to a lot of advice from other founders. And when the hire is not working out, we've been very, very fast to let them go. Uh, but then, you know, that comes with a certain amount of nervousness in the team and, and we're t- still trying to learn how to balance that. With the COVID and the recession and, the you know, it's like the COVID's fighting against you, then Mr. Fed is fighting against you. It's just like, you know, they're just messing stuff up. And it's, you know, if we had made too many mistakes, we'd just die. I think we are lucky to be here. The not knowing how to find product market fit early on, I think that that was an end going in the wrong direction that that could have been lethal i think that's a big mistake
1: okay so then this will be fun to ask what's the future look like for the product and for your team haha <laughs> we'll dominate the world of data <laughs>
0: <laughs> i like that you threw in of data right right behind that <laughs> okay so here's the thing i th- i think what we've done is that we've worked very 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 hard quietly and without too many customers, with a few large customers, and we've just built and built and built product. Now we have the right product. I think this industry, right? When you talk about insights, for example, people are like, oh, Google's and LinkedIn's write code for data engineering. That must be the right way. It's like, no, that's a horrible way. Everybody should be using visual tools. It's like writing for loops for SQL. We have the right way. We can see our customers being extremely productive. The very amazing thing is that for a while, no investor invested in another startup that was building visual programming for data pipelines. And because, you know, Google and LinkedIn engineers, smart engineers told them they should code and the small startup people told them they should around in the Bay Area said, hey, we code. And and the basic thing is that so there is no competition right there is one small product that started i mean one product that started out of uk i shouldn't say small they have 50 million plus in revenue but the product is a toy right or or there is yeah so there's a couple of products not not really very serious so i think we are in a situation where we don't have much competition and that puts us in a very strong position now we just have to you know deliver and get to market fast and 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 you know everybody underestimated how big the cloud was going to be Then everybody underestimated how big the data was going to be. And now at this point, I think everybody underestimates how big a category data tools is going to be because the data currently is not usable. When you look at a lot of the products, teams built around Spark, built around Hadoop, you know, built around like a lot of these things like, how do I publish this? Can I build a data set? Can I publish it? Can I subscribe to it? Do I get quality out of it? And each one is a point feature, right? It's it's just like small, small, small toy companies being built. And, and so I, I think we are looking at it and saying just like there was consolidation at the data platform. First, there was a consolidation at the cloud layer. Everybody's going to use one of the three clouds. And I don't know if how far Google's gonna go. On top of that, there's just two data platforms, right? Databricks and uh, Snowflake that have become dominant. And then on top of that, in the tooling layer, one or two tools will become dominant. This 50 tool things is just gonna go away. So we look at it and we say the future is really bright. We're trying to keep the team small. Small, I mean, we're approaching 50 now, but you know, each sub team of you know pieces of the product smaller, go to market team small, be very efficient. The space of cloud, within that the space of data, and within that the space of data tools is unbounded. It's not clear how large the space is, right? Of course, Jeff Bezos clearly said that about the cloud space, but then that's that's quite similar about the data. We don't know how big the spaces are going to be, and you can talk to any uh, investor, and they have no idea. But whatever they think is the size of the space is an
1: underestimation. Well. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different, where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: I think I should have built a really small product, put it out in the market, and started interacting with the market. I think I spent too much time building the product, thinking I knew what I was going to build. The second thing which I took a really hard turn on and is is to go straight for enterprise. I came back to try to raise my next round and the investors were like, oh no, 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 these days people do go bottoms up and you go from mid-market and then to the enterprise. Now it just so happens that everybody who started in mid-market got their architecture wrong because those things didn't scale. So, you know, they're locked out of enterprise space. So that that seems to have gone okay. But I'm, I was just saying that that is a painful, painful path to have taken to go straight for the enterprise. So I, I think I would have just interacted with the market much, much sooner, tried to get some users using the product and, and kind of build. So I, I think we got too late to get into that tight loop with the customers.
1: Well, Raj, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit?
0: It's a very tricky one and I'll tell you why. Because I get so much advice and so much of it is BS. And all these people with big brand names and big this, 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 like, I don't know. I would just ask them how I could help. So that's one. Number two, if I could give any advice is stay long enough in the game. The longer you are in the game, the more you are learning the longer you are in the game also you know some things will not go your way but then there's sometimes you know luck is a balancing thing and sometimes things will go your way and and so if you're long enough to stay there uh, you'll capture some benefit I think one of the best things that I did was just be relentless it carried me through my mistakes sometimes I got unlucky but then you know sometimes we got if, you're long, if you don't give up and you stay in the game you get lucky too so I think that that's perhaps one uh, piece of advice I can offer. That's great stuff.
1: Well, Raj, thank you for being on the show today. and Thank you for telling the creation story of prophecy. Thank you. It was a delight, Noah. I appreciate it. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.
2: Introducing Wondersuite from bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone.